0: Have you ever wanted to peek into the dark corners of history and see what you find? Luckily, you've come to the right place. I'm Teddy. I'm Katrina.
1: And this is Grave History, a macabre history podcast.
0: friends and welcome back to grave history <gasps> yay yeah well it's not evening right now so we're cheating a bit but um we are yeah it's dark and gloomy where i am right now so that's it's fine dark
1: and gloomy here too oh how
0: nice how appropriate it's like
1: the wind is whistling outside
0: yeah i had some great like rain asmr earlier but it seems to have eased off now Oh, okay. ASMR is the best. It is the best. But that's okay, Mm. because tonight's topic is... uh, I wouldn't describe it as spooky, like ASMR-type material.
1: Mm. I would
0: describe it as... A lot of it's quite harrowing, actually, so I'm putting kind of content warning uh, straight up, because tonight's topic is, if you'll remember from last time, it's going to be about the Cold War. Mm. Uh, Maybe not the right noise. Uh... (laughs) Ah! Either I, noise is fine, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, so last time I, I mentioned what I wanted to do, and uh, I was kind of talking about a broader look at what Britain was up to during the Cold War, mm-hmm. including looking at espionage. I do remember that, yes. Yeah, there were some really great stories about that. But what I ended up doing in researching it was thinking, okay, this is probably going to have to be split into parts because there's too much for just one episode Too much here. content. Too much co- which is often the case, I've found. Yeah. And the thing I ended up researching was something that was quite viscerally terrifying for me. Yeah. When I first kind of found out about it when I was about 16 or so, I think, was when I kind of learned what the Cold War was. Yeah. (laughs) Which may be a bit late, I don't know, but...
1: No, that sounds about
0: GCSE history time. Well, we didn't do it in school, actually. What happened was I went to a nuclear bunker, a former nuclear bunker, I should say, Mm -hmm. in scotland it's it's in fife it's called scotland's secret bunker (laughs) yeah bit of a misnomer really isn't so secret there's like a huge sign of it on the motorway that says visit scotland's secret bunker we had something like that near here called like secret island or something there's a few open around the uk that have been like turned into museums of these i mean Mm. i'll talk about this more in a second but when i visited it it's this bunker it's hidden under a farmhouse so it looks like a small farmhouse on, uh, on the ground level yeah and when you go inside you go down these steps into this big concrete corridor that mm-hmm. just slopes down and takes you onto the ground and it's a complex that's Ooh. about the size of it's i've got it here twenty four thousand square feet of Jesus. bunker which is two football pitches stacked on top of each other and fucking it just fucking hell Yeah, it's this big concrete expanse of rooms, including, like, a chapel and Uh a bunch of other stuff. And it's basically where Scotland would have been governed from in the event of the Cold War turning hot, which I'll explain more in a second. Uh, But in one of the exhibition rooms, it was just a dark room that had a TV Mm. and, like, a chair. And I sat down and I watched um, a public information film called Protect and Survive, which was playing on a loop. And I sat and I watched it for about 40 minutes Uh And I left it a different person because it was so (laughs) chilling and Mm. so awful. It was basically what would have happened. Mm. It was basically an information film about government advice in the event of a nuclear war. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later. In fact, it's kind of the the centre of this whole episode. But I think we should start with a little primer on what the Cold War actually was. Because for some, uh, well, it's complicated. Like, it, it's, it. we were talking about school, but it doesn't even really get... I mean, in my school, they didn't teach the Cold War per se. Mm. Like, I don't think it's in history class. It is in modern studies class.
1: Yeah, they covered it in mine. I think we did, like, not in its entirety, but kind of yeah. how it started... The moon race, uh, the Cuban missile yeah. crisis, that kind of
0: thing. The fun bit, yeah.
1: Yeah, the interesting. Bit.
0: <laughs> so you might think there's not a lot to talk about from a UK perspective because the UK was not a key player. Nope. The U- UK was pretty small, all things considered, despite you know being a superpower for so mm. long. The two main aggressors were the USA, of course, and the Soviet Union. The USSR. Two big boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and both of their respective allies. Sorry, I should I should uh, clarify. Mm-hmm. The period is generally understood to encompass the end of the Second World War, uh, more precisely, sort of nineteen forty seven Truman Doctrine, which was uh, a change in American foreign policy that aimed to curb Soviet expansion,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: the nineteen ninety one dissolution of the Soviet Union. Okay. So that's about uh, just under half a century. Yep. Some people would say we've got Cold War part two going on right now but we're not going yeah. to get into
1: because <laughs> i don't want to get poisoned
0: no i don't want to get poisoned either but apparently that's still happening
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and it's all cold means um it's it was a period of tensions uh and there was no physical fighting between the two big powers
1: mm. but
0: both engaged in proxy wars
1: oh yeah yes
0: yeah, suppo- supporting opposing sides fighting elsewhere so the korean war the vietnam war both examples of this Mm -hmm. and that cold tactics were employed by both sides so these were plays for uh, dominance expressed by non-violent means so propaganda
1: space race?
0: yes, space race yeah, Uh, technological one-upmanship including the space race and yeah, propaganda, even really soft stuff like, you know, Star Trek has been written about as being like not propaganda per se, but, like, a commentary on what was going ah, on. Yeah.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, and then
0: I remember reading a thing that was, like, and then Next Generation demonstrates how we were getting friendlier with the Russians in the 90s because, you know, there's a Klingon who's part of the crew now.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, because Worf is on the on the deck of the... Yeah. And the, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but also, like, sport rivalries and espionage, which, of course, mm. we'll talk about again. So, uh, basically, just, like, sneaky ways to kind of one-up each other.
1: Yeah. I see that.
0: But the Cold War couldn't get hot because uh, the end game of the Cold War getting hot would be nuclear war, basically. Mm -hmm. Because both sides had access to nuclear weapons. And as is said in the wonderful song uh, Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Mm -hmm. when two tribes go to war, one point is all that you can score. Yep. (laughs) I.e. someone bombs someone else, we're all gone. Mm. It's very much
1: a kind of cut off your nose despite your face type of warfare pretty much not that you know any warfare is not that but particularly nuclear it's
0: yes nuclear war is very devastating which we mm-hmm. will talk about in a little more depth and yeah. something that could potentially ended like life on the planet as we know it yeah now for better or for worse the uk is a long time ally of the usa <laughs> <laughs> meaning we were in the west therefore yep. against the soviet union uh, britain also has somewhat of a historic enmity with russia so that mm. kind of you know fits in quite well so we were you know with most of western europe Yep. The Soviet Union included modern Belarus, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, Moldova, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, we're in the stands now, Uzbekistan, (laughs) Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, plus what is uh, now Russia.
1: Did it also include the the Baltic states?
0: Now, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania were included, but many people consider the occupation illegal. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's complicated and it's not like, it's, yeah... I'd recommend, again, with everything I talk about, reading more about it, because there's a lot more than what I'm talking about right now. Mm. They were also in cooperation with East Germany,
1: Albania,
0: Mm. Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, and Romania, in the Warsaw uh, Pact.
1: Now, on the other
0: side, you've got the NATO nations, the capitalist allies, if you want to, you know, really simplify it. US on top, supported by UK, Canada, almost all of Western Europe... Yugoslavia was non-aligned, Austria, Ireland and Sweden were neutral but Western-aligned, and Finland and Switzerland were totally neutral. As they usually are. Yes. (laughs) That's pretty much every. Uh, Japan wasn't really involved. They were occupied by the USA for um, a long time after the Second World War, and they were disarmed as well, so they tried to focus on soft power. Yeah, and they had just recently been nuclear-bombed. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah, they they just weren't involved at all. But I suspect nowadays they would be considered US aligned, although they do have an al- mm. alli- allyship with China. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. <laughs> but yeah, basically, kind of a binary of politics was going on in the world. And separating the nations in Europe, uh, you know, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, was the Iron Curtain, which was a hard border yes. along East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. Um, and it was very physical in a lot of places, uh, most notably the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. Illegally crossing this wall could mean instant death, yep. uh, and did mean instant death for a lot of people, though there are also some great tales of daring escape. hmm <laughs> Now, Britain's role has been kind of overlooked. Some historians have, you know, gone back to reflect on it, uh, and Dayton is one of them. Mm-hmm. They've argued that the role might have been bigger than previously estimated, uh, as well as the aforementioned long historical rivalry with, Russian, with Russia, because they were both afraid of the other expanding. Yeah. And then also Britain wasn't fond of communism. No. <laughs> um, so that, that fed into that as well.
1: Yeah. I imagine Stalin's role in the Second World War probably didn't help
0: either. Yeah, I, it's, it's it's very odd, because maybe that's why, like, it's Russia's role in, in um, or the Soviet Union's role, rather, in ending World War II is so overlooked in history.
1: Yeah.
0: And the amount of deaths
1: that they had versus everyone else. Yeah,
0: Jesus Christ. The most deaths by far. Yeah.
1: I can plug. Yeah. I can plug Casting Lots. Do, please. Because they have an episode that covers the, the sieges uh, in Russia.
0: Ooh. That stuff is pretty brutal.
1: Yeah. But if you're interested, yeah. um, Casting Lots does
0: cover that. Yes, please check it out. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. Uh, now, Britain's role was quite influential in the early Cold War. Mm-hmm. So uh, Churchill, Prime Minister during World War Two, this is just a very quick summing up, he cooperated with Stalin even though he hated communism. Mm-hmm. And he pushed to strengthen the Anglo-American relationship because he thought it was the best defence okay it has been argued that churchill was able to impress his thoughts onto the new u.s president truman as churchill was seen as being more of an expert in european politics so truman was like okay i'm gonna defer to you a bit because i know what you're talking about and european uh, xenophobia yeah that as well <laughs> mm-hmm. it's also been suggested that ernest bevan who was foreign secretary from 1945 to 1951 under who was the prime minister clement Attlee was a strong influence on US politics and he was key in Britain's participation in NATO. Uh-huh. Uh, he was also really anti-communist um and apparently almost got into a fist fight with Soviet foreign minister oh, Vyacheslav geez. Molotov. <laughs> yes <laughs> um, Which is pretty fun. But overall Britain's contribution was pretty low key, secondary. Yeah. This might be a better term for it. Uh we had this special relationship with the US. Uh if you I'm I'm fond of that term too. <sighs> but The US basically wasn't going to do anything it didn't want to do. Mm. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed even a little bit. And events like the Suez Crisis of 56, Mm -hmm. I kind of pronounce that like Billy Joel, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Suffice to say, it basically involved uh, Britain attempting to establish itself in Egypt and then being squashed by the US. To, like, really oversimplify what was going on there. Yeah. But, you know, we had a fairly... We were, we were far away from hard borders, so mm-hmm. we weren't, like, you know, in Europe. And we weren't really feeling the same pressure the US was
1: mm-hmm.
0: in this bipolar war. US versus Soviet Union, everyone else along for the ride. Yeah. But th- that is not to say that um, Britain didn't feel the impact, because that's obviously just plain wrong. And I'm going to argue maybe particularly on a psychological level.
1: That makes sense, yeah.
0: Yeah. So what I'm talking about mostly is what it would have been like from a civilian perspective okay uh, this isn't a complete look at britain and the cold war for that i would recommend two books that i use as a resource for what i talked about just there and other stuff um, these books are britain and the cold war 1945 to 1991 by sean greenwood and bang a history of britain in the 1980s by graham stewart that's a catchy title i know it's great bang bang <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not meant to be a concise look at UK foreign policy from the 60s to the 80s or Thatcherism either because that's not really the intent of this podcast. We're here to mm. kind of bring you the spooks. Yes. I'm just focusing on something that I personally found very creepy and when I looked it up I found lots of other people were disturbed and haunted mm. by it. Uh, the thing
1: you sent me reminded me of yeah. you know the the trailer for Chernobyl. Yes. The like repeated attention attention well it's not attention it's intention but Neman- yeah that shit that's what it reminded me of
0: yeah it's nuclear age stuff is very chilling for uh-huh. I don't really know why it's got a certain uncanniness to it
1: I think it's because it's trying to be kind of factual and regular announcements about the
0: idea of absolute nuclear holocaust I agree yeah that's that's kind of I think it's the contrast <laughs> That's that's often the case, like I find matter-of-fact discussions of something horrifying, they can be more horrifying than, like, the monster itself, you know what I mean? Mm. Absolutely. Like, I hate to keep bringing everything round to uh, the human centipede, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, no. the, sca- the the scariest part of any of those films is the bit in the first film when Dr. Crazy von German <laughs> is, like, coldly explaining how the procedure works.
1: Oh, jeez. That's by
0: far... Th- yeah. Yeah. That's I, that's um, that's the example I usually give when I'm trying to prove. Look, it's that's it's scarier when it's this way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> or even but, like the beginning of um, is it the beginning? The, the 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 company side of Cabin in the Woods.
0: Yeah. Although they're always kind of goofing around, but yeah, they've got a kind of clinicalness to them that makes yeah it kind of, ugh, don't like that. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. That's a great movie. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so in the UK. For many people, the threat of nuclear annihilation was very real. Mm-hmm. Both government and civilians were aware of this. Yeah, the government spent a lot of time and money preparing for a war that never really kicked off in the end, thankfully. Mm. Although, yeah, obviously British shol- British soldiers, uh, British soldiers <laughs> were deployed to you know the Korean War. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there, there were real consequences in the form of death and injury, mm-hmm. but not as catastrophic as they could have been. Yeah, probably most extraordinary and like the greatest physical reminder are the network of bunkers planted across the country. Yeah, that are designed to provide shelter in the case of a nuclear attack. So, kind of talked about this a little bit, but there were around fifteen hundred sort of small radiation monitoring posts, as well as more than a dozen enormous underground complexes.
1: Fucking hell!
0: I know several of which are now open to the public. Yeah, Like the, like I say, um, there is one in Scotland that is worth visiting. I also grew up close to one in Barnton, Edinburgh, which is currently being turned into a museum. Mm. But there are more that are just, you know, not open to the public.
1: I think there's one in Essex, actually. I'm just checking.
0: I believe you're correct. I found yeah, a leaflet Kelvedon, Kelveden, yes. Kelvedon's one of them. You've also mm-hmm. got the York Cold War Bunker uh mm-hmm. which is a, a museum you can visit and the Burlington bunker oh, okay yeah that's one of the most famous ones but yeah Calden Hatch um haven't been to it but it looks great so if you live nearby might be worth checking it out
1: yeah if it's o- i hope it's open during lockdown
0: that'd be very funny if it wasn't though mhm why <laughs> <laughs> but it's the safest place for me to be right now <laughs> it's the safest place yeah. <laughs>
1: Do you think, Um. sorry, this thought's just hit me, because when you were describing the bunker near you, it reminded me of it. Do you think they would have reused Churchill's war rooms? I don't know. I think they may have done. Because they're similar kind of underground and
0: labyrinthine concrete tunnels. I think they probably would have done. Yeah. Because I don't know what the government defence in London would have been. No, no. Uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure, but it's entirely possible that it was never like open to the public, and that it's because I'm pretty sure they've got something still hmm. in place. They're probably still holding on to it, to be honest. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we don't want to get rid of that just yet. We don't want to get rid of that just yet. You know, they they must have something like that, like a <laughs> a panic room, and one then one eye on Putin. Oh, great! So the the chosen <laughs> one who will survive this attack is Boris Johnson. Great. Uh... Um I'm Yay. I'm going to try very hard not to get political in this but it may become difficult <laughs> at certain points. Um I think we've already failed. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting was I noticed in the in this bunker as well as in a few other sort of Cold War sites I've been to is that there's quite a heavy feeling of psychic dread. Ah. Oh. And this is and I've noticed this being talked about by people who live through it as well like my I remember my mum told me yeah that this is people who are in the kind of 40 to 60 plus age range yeah my mum told me in the 80s she just assumed everything would be wiped out you know, a lot of the time Jesus. yeah
1: yeah I think my mum said something similar as well when I brought up the like public announcement thing she was like oh yeah they they were like normal oh yeah they were normal that's just how life was
0: had a plan <laughs> For, yeah <laughs> that you hoped would work probably wouldn't but there you go yeah yeah <laughs> Now, luckily in the UK, we don't know what the aftermath of a nuclear attack would look like. There have been two nuclear bombs deployed as an offensive measure before, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 1945. Mm-hmm. Though obviously Japan rose from the ashes of that, it wasn't without a lot of anguish and pain.
1: Yeah, The
0: attack still provokes very strong memories in people. There are still survivors. There's, I've, I've never been there, but I've written quite a lot about it. There's a, a memorial centre at the uh, Hiroshima... It's called the Genbaku Peace Dome. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, not dwelling too much on Japan here, but it is essentially the only model we have of what a nuclear attack would look like, thankfully. Yeah, you also have, I guess you could also use
1: Chernobyl as like a a model of nuclear
0: fallout. You absolutely can. That's, yeah, that's true. And I'll talk about fallout a wee bit more later. Mm. But yeah, thankfully, we've only got Japan. yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, these attacks, I'd like to kind of describe them a little bit. So, yeah, this is where a content warning comes in.
1: Okay, I'll guard myself. It's not...
0: I'm not not being gratuitous or anything. I'm more just trying to describe what it would have been like. (laughs) Yeah. So these attacks were completely devastating. In Hiroshima, everything within a one-mile radius of point X, which is where the bomb fell, was completely wiped out. Jesus. (laughs) Buildings left standing, which were reinforced concrete, built to withstand earthquakes because they're quite common in Japan mm. had their interiors completely gutted by the blast
1: Jesus
0: in Nagasaki everything a half mile from point X was destroyed um, all Japanese mm. homes within a mile and a half completely obliterated because traditional Japanese architecture is based on wood mm. which we could also withstand earthquakes but just in a different way Yeah. in both cities roof tiles bubbled and melted steel frame buildings were distorted brick walls cracked and crumbled and burned infrastructure suffered as well obviously railroad tracks and water pipes suffered worse as did the telephone mm. systems being japan though public transport was restored in like two days <laughs> which is very japanese yeah um <laughs> but uh casualties are a little bit harder to calculate the human cost was pretty huge though
1: mm.
0: they're harder to calculate because in the confusion of the aftermath uh, destruction of civil buildings and agencies you know it's harder to count people and also yeah. it's not 100% certain how many people were there before the bomb dropped also mm-hmm. worth mentioning here uh, not relevant to uh, the podcast really but was there were a lot of korean forced laborers present uh. yeah japan's got a tricky tricky history oh yeah tricky history essentially the attack had four stages of fatality mm-hmm. this is from a site called history hit so first of all instant death from the shockwave and expansion of air and the 7000 degrees celsius blast People were blown away or crushed inside buildings or by flying Deborah. Some people suffocated as the firestorm consumed all the oxygen. Yeah. And some people were completely vaporized.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, it's serious. Uh-huh. The second stage was people who walked considerable distances in the aftermath before collapsing and dying.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, fatal burns occurred within a five mile radius of X, and if you were at the edge, your death would take longer, basically. Jesus. Yeah. Number 3 people who died in the days and weeks after the attack due to injury and illness some mm-hmm. people were temporarily or permanently blinded by the blast this is also the period where radiation poisoning would become obvious yeah. and if you've received yeah if you've received a high enough dose uh, acute radiation syndrome can kill you in days uh, so actress Midori Naka survived the bombing of Hiroshima only to die 18 days later with her white blood cells completely depleted. She was the first person ever to be certified as a victim of ARS.
1: A, a victim of what, sorry?
0: Sorry, ARS, acute radiation syndrome. Ah, got you. Yeah, that's good. yeah. Yeah, you if you've seen Chernobyl, that's what happened in Chernobyl as got well. Got it. So there's been an expression of concern that a completely ruined infrastructure could lead to higher risks of disease and death, but this was not the case in Japan. Mm-hmm. Experts have expressed doubt that this would occur anywhere. Yeah, I don't know about the impact of a broken sanitation system and infrastructure and medical system, but I I, I agree people would probably try and help each other. You know mm. what I mean? Like they wouldn't they wouldn't just revert to living in slums <laughs> if yeah. they could avoid it. And finally, the fourth one is people who died years later from cancer and other long-term complaints linked to the bombing. The word, the Japanese word for these people is Hibakusha, which means bomb survivors. Mm-hmm. Almost like a little, well, not subculture. That's not the word. No. Um, but yeah, <laughs> this in particular is what makes a precise death count difficult because you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's no compelling evidence of birth defects among survivors' children from Hiroshima. Okay. So unlike unlike something like Chernobyl. Mm issues developing in the longer aftermath can include lung problems sterility in men and women skin damage temporary hair loss and cataracts Fuck. <laughs> yeah. and also uh, the mental effect is pretty severe yeah. in hibakusha <laughs> who suffered psycho neurological disturbances for the rest of their lives which uh-huh. duh yeah. obviously they did
1: <laughs> it seems like you'd almost be like uh, not to be you know needlessly macabre but it does Please. seem like you'd almost be something of a walking ghost.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it de- it would depend what happened to you. Yeah. And everyone would react differently. But yeah, some people were very, very badly affected by it. Mm, um, absolutely. Obviously. This is all to explain to you how serious and devastating the only nuclear attacks that have ever happened were. Mm. And this was in 1945. Nuclear weaponry, unfortunately, became more sophisticated in the decades that followed. Yeah, because we keep fucking spending money on it. That's what drives technology, unfortunately. It's war.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the problem about a nuclear attack is that as technology progressed, the gap between a country being aware of the possibility of an mm. attack and the bomb detonating narrows considerably. Mm. Britain, like every other country, had ways of knowing if an attack was imminent. Yeah. uh, Which developed as the decades passed. In the event of intercontinental ballistic missile attack, Uh the ballistic missile early warning system, which was an American radar system, would pick it up. In the UK, the BMuse, as it was called system was in Filingdales, North Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And it you when it was first built, it looked like three giant golf balls. Google <laughs> a peg, it's quite delightful. It was built in the early sixties. Yeah. Uh, tragically these ray domes are now gone. They've been replaced with like a, a kind of pyramid structure which isn't as whimsical. Boo. Though the site is still in operation. Mm-hmm. So uh, these guys, they would obtain data about an incoming missile Mm -hmm. using the three rotating radar heads. Two would catch the missile in its beams, um, which were scanning the horizon, and the third would track the missile and calculate its trajectory. If any of them failed, the Royal Observer Corps would pick it up, hopefully. This would then pass on to, ah yes, here we are, the United Kingdom Warning and Monitoring Organization. Catchy. Yeah. This was a civilian organization that aimed to provide UK military and civilian authorities with data on nuclear explosions and fallout forecasts. Uh, They were in operation from 1957 to 1992 when they were disbanded. Which is, you know, reassuring, I guess. Yeah. We don't need you anymore. You guys are gone. <laughs> it's actually quite fun. Uh, apparently, there was conflict over whether the Home Office or the RAF were responsible for the warning system because they were worried about who would get the blame in the event of a false alarm. <laughs> Oh, that's so British. Basically, they had the unenviable job of warning the public of the event of a nuclear attack. Mm. If they did have to do so, the period between confirming an attack and the bomb making impact was four minutes. <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent sure when this came when this became the fact, somewhere between the sixties and the eighties. Yeah. In practice it would have been more like three minutes <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> and yeah, like I say, they were this the UK WMO, they uh, had to provide them, or uh, provide information about both explosions and then later on about fallout. Yeah. Uh, now, fallout, if you don't know what it is, is the residual radioactive material left in the sky after the detonation of a nuclear bomb. In the aftermath, it falls out of the sky. So, pretty yeah. simple name. Uh, it can appear as black rain. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> blown by wind and brought down by rain, but it can also be very hard to see. Uh, mm. with the Naked eye. Duration of the fallout and how radioactive it is depends on where the bomb was detonated, the weather in the area, the size and force of the explosion, bunch of different things. Chernobyl, as you were saying, Elliot, is a great example of the long-term effects of nuclear fallout. Mm. And it spread throughout Europe. And it could have been a lot worse than it was. In Scotland, agriculture was hit pretty badly. Mm. Yeah, by the Chernobyl, when sheep grazing in hilly areas were found to show levels of radioactivity that would be dangerous for people to eat, basically. Yeah, Yeah, restrictions on sheep meat were only lifted in 2010, I think. Fuck. Relatively recently, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. That's just to give you an idea of how dangerous fallout is. Uh Uh-huh. So the warning would come to the public at large in two equally terrifying ways. Now, the warning system was also known as HANDOL. I don't think that stands for anything per se but it's spelled like the composer. Yeah. This is a warning system. You can see a handle warning console on display at the Imperial War Museum. Okay. Or you will be able to when it opens again. <laughs> There's a very thorough explanation of how it works on a site called uh, Bell. Okay. Yeah, ringbell.co.uk, yep. <laughs> which is very technical, and I didn't understand most of it because it's, <laughs> it's just one of those... It's, uh, that, the problem is I find all this really interesting, but also, like, I don't understand how a lot of it works, if that makes sense. Like, I don't really understand how nuclear fission works, even though I've tried. I'm enjoying the ride. I don't really understand what's happening, but I'm having fun. If you want to read the very technical stuff, I recommend Um, ringbell.co.uk. It's kind of a... I'd use the term fan site, but that's not really the correct way of putting it, is it? (laughs) Civilian run. Civilian run. um, Enthusiast site. (laughs) The public would be alerted um, to the danger... Uh, via siren, mm-hmm. the siren sounds very similar to World War II air raid sirens, that kind of rising yeah. and falling scream.
1: Uh, I hate those.
0: It's unsettling, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's, I don't know what it is, there's something primal about it. Something upsetting.
1: Yeah, a it like it like you said. It kind of sounds like a wounded animal or a scream. Yeah. But also, I think it's intentionally discordant.
0: Yeah, because it's supposed to get you to stop doing whatever you're doing, and
1: yeah, it's designed to make you pay attention to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, the the all clear siren was. Uh, a steady sound, so it wouldn't rise and fall, and that meant mm. it's safe to leave the shelters. Yeah. Uh, the fallout warning was given as three short sharp noises, um, which would be three fireworks, uh-huh. and in some areas, three gong sounds or three whistles on a policeman's whistle. Um, <laughs> Perfect. So British. Peep peep peep. That's it, basically. <laughs> they have a, and there is audio footage of. I mean, I'll get into this in in a second, but there is. Um, archival footage of what these warnings would have been like now the public would also receive a radio broadcast Mm. which would cut into whatever was on at the time presumably also on the television Mm -hmm. it was recorded by peter donaldson who was then the chief continuity announcer at the bbc this never happened it never cut into anything which is good now i'd like to read the script to you but why would i do that when we can just have peter do it play the clip
2: this is the wartime broadcasting service this country has been attacked with nuclear weapons communications have been severely disrupted and the number of casualties and the extent of the damage are not yet known we shall bring you further information as soon as possible meanwhile stay tuned to this wavelength stay calm and stay in your own house remember there's nothing to be gained by trying to get away By leaving your homes, you could be exposing yourselves to greater danger. If you leave, you may find yourselves without food, without water, without accommodation, and without protection. We shall be on the air every hour on the hour. Stay tuned to this wavelength, but switch your radios off now to save your batteries. That is the end of this broadcast.
0: I hate that. I know it's terrible, isn't it? That's what you would have heard. Uh, is <laughs> That's it, horrible. That...
1: That's like something from a fucking.
0: It's the purge. What's it's the, the purge, man. Yeah, <laughs>
1: it's the
0: purge, man. It's the purge. I don't like it. There's, there's also if you want to get more disturbed, someone imagined an updated version of what this would have been like on YouTube. <laughs> uh it's a nice way to shit your pants if you want to most likely nowadays uh such a warning would come by text which is what happened in hawaii a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. yeah they they received a a false warning um for a ballistic missile yeah which (laughs) i remember that i would sue for emotional damage if that happened i swear to christ yeah yeah absolutely totally but I mean, what good is all of this, really, if the public don't know what to do in the event of an attack? I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
0: people in general were fairly ignorant of how radiation and nuclear weaponry actually worked. Mm-hmm. And again, Hiroshima was really the only example to compare to. Yeah. And that, was, that, that wasn't pretty, but it was also far away and long ago. Mm-hmm. And in the event of nuclear attack, knowing what to do makes the world of difference, really. So... In the event of nuclear warfare, there had to be a way to let the public know exactly what they needed to do to keep themselves safe. Fear not. (laughs) There were two public information campaigns. Uh The first was made in 1963 in the form of a pamphlet called Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Which um, is available to read online. It was criticised for being vague and not really providing information why you must do what the pamphlet said. British government being vague? Yeah, imagine that. Imagine that. God, it must be awful. Imagine that. (laughs) In 64, seven black and white public information films were produced. Mm -hmm. These were somewhat more informative and they would have been broadcast in the event of an attack. You can watch them, I think they're still on YouTube... They're somewhere, because I've definitely seen them quite recently. (laughs) I can't remember, man. It's just a hellscape of videos. (laughs) They might have been in the BBC archive, actually. Oh,
1: maybe, yeah.
0: Yeah. But um, it was an update to this campaign that became rather more infamous. Mm -hmm. It was called Protect and Survive. Good old slogan there. We love a slogan. Totally, yeah. It's a good slogan. That's how you, you know, stay safe, plan ahead. Catch it, bin it, kill it. Catch it, uh, go to the winchester, have a nice cold pint and wait for all this to blow over. (laughs) But the key difference between the two is that Protect and Survive emphasised more that what you'd really need to do is stay home, Mm. which sounds a bit familiar now, doesn't it? It does, yeah. (laughs) Now, Protect and Survive also started off as a booklet, which was uh, prepared in 1976, but not published until 1980 after intense public demand. It can be read online in several places, including atomica.co.uk, which was a useful resource.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It would be distributed free of charge in if nuclear war became likely. Mm-hmm. But what would stick in the mind for people even more than the booklet were the accompanying public information films. Now, a little side <laughs> note on public information films. British ones are off uh-huh. the fucking chain. Like... <laughs> I think you could do a whole episode about public information films.
1: Yeah. Honestly. Almost
0: certainly. Pretty much all of them are available on YouTube. There's a user who has like ones from all over the world pretty much. Like I spent about an hour watching Australian PSAs the other day for no reason. Oh god. <sighs> I, I recommend watching them, but content warning, obviously, because mm. they're all about serious issues. But it's it's interesting, especially the older ones are such a time capsule into Yeah. how pe- Like a, the, I think the most famous one is is called it's Dark Waters, I think.
1: Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Warning children not to jump into the canal because the Grim Reaper will <laughs> get you, um, <laughs> which is yeah. It's almost gothic in it. <laughs> mm.
1: I love the, um, the voice of like the announcer that's always on them.
0: What to do in the event of a new... On that one in particular, it was Donald Pleasance, I oh, believe, God. voicing <laughs> the groom. And um, the, the most famous AIDS um, ones had John Hurt doing the narration. Mm. Oh yeah, I've seen the John Hurt one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Protect and Survive um, consisted of 20 shorts... Mm -hmm. which were made using hand-drawn and stop-motion animation, and they were narrated by British actor Patrick Allen, who has a very clipped, matter-of-fact sort of voice. Yeah. They're hard to describe without actually showing you. (laughs) All are compiled on YouTube, and it would take about an hour to watch them all if you have the time and the inclination. Mm -hmm. You really need to understand the tone of these films in order to get why they had the cultural impact. Yeah. Uh, i'm going to explain so we're going to cut straight to the chase here is the audio from one of the films the last one which is explaining what to do with casualties
3: after an attack is over and the all clear has been sounded Arrangements will be made as soon as possible to treat any people who are ill or injured. Listen to your radio. Details will be given about what to do, when to do it, and how. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address, and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. If, however, you have had a body in the house for more than five days, and if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial.
0: Can we talk for a second about the little jingle at the end? Because uh, I hate it. I hate it. It's horrid. It's awful. I can't even explain why it's awful. It's just awful. Because you shouldn't have a jingle at the end of a nuclear war safety video. I think. I I think it's in... (laughs) I think it's in a minor key as uh, well. I don't know about music, but it just it just it just hits you wrong yeah. for some reason. Also, it was written by Roger Lim, who wrote music for Doctor Who. Huh? For I, I don't—he didn't do the theme song, I don't think. But he no, because that was a woman. That was a woman. Sorry, I beg your pardon. But he did write music for some uh, episodes of Doctor Who. Oh, okay. Now, like I said previously, the pamphlet was published in 1980 due to public demand for it. Mm-hmm. It came into attention following a series of articles in the Times in January of 1980, Mm -hmm. written as a response to letters sent in December of 1979, uh, questioning the UK's civil defence arrangements. The newspaper actually named Protect and Survive as an unpublished work, you know, which explained the defence strategy, but this gave it like a publicity bump and led Mm. to pressure to publish it. People were like, why is it so secret? And the government were like, nothing, Jesus, here's your goddamn pamphlet. (laughs) So, yeah, it it was available for
1: sale. So what you're saying is we need the Metro to pressure the government... Yes. ...to actually release some useful information.
0: Yes. I got it. <laughs> Apparently that's exactly what we need. But yeah. um, Protect and Survive's impact on pop culture is pretty considerable. Mm. So first up came a Panorama episode mm-hmm. titled If the Bomb Drops. Oh, this episode is available on YouTube... Quite a lot of what I'm talking about is is completely available to watch on YouTube. It was first broadcast March 10th, 1980, so very shortly after the publication. Mm-hmm. And it stars baby Jeremy Paxman. oh, <laughs> Being just, just as... well, his old Paxman self. And it takes a look at the current UK preparations for nuclear war, mm-hmm. which are based on the assumption we'd get three weeks warning. Yeah. Which they already knew would so- almost certainly not be the case. Yeah. And this um, documentary contained the first clips of the Protect and Survive films. Got yeah. That was the first time the public ever saw them. It also contained some hilariously matter-of-fact talking heads <laughs> interviews with um, members of the public. Yeah. Of particular note is a man who is a, who is being interviewed, who's a real dyed-in-the-wool cockney. And when he's asked what he'd do if he heard the warning, just responds... I, I can't do his accent, I'm just going to read it verbatim. Yeah. Waste of time in it, going anywhere. You've had it, haven't you? What preparations you got... You've had it, ain't you? No use crying over spilt milk. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Another man points out that there aren't enough shelters for anyone. Mm. Um, Panorama tested the government advice on building a shelter and found it completely lacking. Like, you basically <laughs> need a garden for one thing. Yeah. So a lot of people in, who, who live in inner cities are screwed. hmm <laughs> This whole episode is basically a slow roast of British government oh, inadequacy. I love it. I mean it's kind of worth watching for that reason alone yeah. because again it is almost comical another feature was on a BBC science program QED
1: mm-hmm.
0: this was called A Guide to Armageddon <laughs> it was first broadcast in 1982 uh-huh. it's half an hour long it's also available on YouTube mm-hmm easy to watch, and it's a cold scientific overview of what would happen if a bomb exploded over St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, A nuclear bomb. Oh god. (laughs) The prognosis ain't good. No. (laughs) You don't say. It includes makeup effects to show the immediate effect of a blast burn on someone on the periphery (laughs) of the blast. And also what would happen to a person in the blast zone, which they show you by roasting a joint of pork meat graphically. Oh, god! And also it's got makeup effects of the progression of radiation sickness, including, like, gum bleeding and hair loss. Uh. Yeah. Again, it's kind of darkly comical Uh in some places. It's got a bit where, where a couple who live in somewhere in North London, they follow the government instructions and, like, whitewash their windows and build a shelter under the stairs. mm and then the, the, and then the narrator's like, they should survive. For 17 seconds at least. Oh, and then it shows shit. their home blowing up. So it's it's pretty funny. Fucking hell. It really drives the point home that all the project and survive advice is kind of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> they were written with the expectation that in a minimal nuclear attack, 20-25% of the population would die. <laughs> and to me, these documentaries seem to be brimming with anger Mm. that is kept just below the surface like anger at the whole situation and i don't know maybe maybe if you'd watch them you'd feel differently Mm. um but there's fiction inspired by protect and survive and also by these documentaries Mm -hmm. and it wasn't quite as subtle Mm. so the the unnerving nature of protect and survive and qed comes from how coldly scientific they are Uh uh-huh But the most famous example of something that was inspired by this culture is Threads, which is a 1984 television docudrama broadcast by the BBC. Mm -hmm. Now, this came following an American TV movie called The Day After, which is about a nuclear attack in the American Midwest. Mm -hmm. This film actually had a profound effect on President Ronald Reagan, who watched it and was very disturbed, saying it left him deeply depressed. Good. So... Yeah, he deserves it. Some people actually give The Day After credit for ending the Cold War, basically. <laughs> like, it affected the power of media, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, uh, The Day After is it's pretty harrowing, and it's, re- it's quite realistic, but it also ends on a somewhat optimistic note, mm-hmm. and it shows people working together. Threads doesn't even try. Oh, jeez. So... <laughs> It's far more depressing than The Day After. Mm-hmm. It's about a nuclear bomb going off in Sheffield. Yeah. And what was it Charlie Brooker described as it doing millions of pounds of improvement to Sheffield's architecture. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's very... It, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to be braggadocious, but I've watched a lot of horror movies. It's like my favourite genre. I've watched some very disturbing movies. Threads is one movie I'm never going to watch again because it's so... That's valid. Harrowing. Mm. And maybe that word is overused, but it's the kind of film where afterwards you just go, Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, you just have to sit there for a bit and be like,
0: oh. Yeah, it's it's basically the story of, it follows one woman who is pregnant when the bomb goes off and like her giving birth oh, and then how the, what, what the world's like 10 years later. Uh-huh. Terrible, still terrible.
1: It reminds me kind of harrowing tense of something like Children of Men. you're like, well, I've watched that now.
0: That's quite a good comparison. Yeah. That's a good comparison. On the Road is another good comparison.
1: Mm.
0: Oh, On the Road is awful. I think Threads is more harrowing. Oh, jeez. Than On the Road. Oh, (laughs) jeez. I'm not lying when I say I think it may be the most depressing thing I've ever seen. Yeah,
1: it certainly fucking sounds like it.
0: And at the end, like, all the children who were born after the explosion, they've, like language is broken down so they can only kind of grunt at oh, each other Jesus. and they're, they're basically living like animals and it's yeah uh-huh. now going by purely anecdotal evidence just and this is just like people talking in youtube comments and also charlie brooker talked about it quite a lot uh-huh. It uh, threads and and the qed thing came up in his um how tv ruined your life fear episode yeah. from 2011 which is also on youtube if you want some commentary on these things The Threads had a very lingering and haunting effect on viewers then, and it still does now. Mm -hmm. People born long after the end of the Cold War find it hard to watch, even though, in theory, they can't relate to what's going on in it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's the total opposite of Protect and Survive's kind of eerie calm, and I think that's kind of a good thing. Yeah. The film is, it's a perfect depiction of the criticism that came about of Protect and Survive. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, the ca- the campaign for nuclear disarmament said that the the booklet popularized the idea that nuclear war was survivable,
1: yeah. Thus potentially
0: making it more likely mm. people might not take it seriously, or they might develop an attitude like, "Well, we survived the Blitz, we can survive this." No, we won't. Um, <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> the um, the roy uh, the- is it the Royal College of Nurses? I think that's yeah. what I mean. They all s- they they wrote a very similar complaint saying the NHS can't cope with. Like, if this happens, the most we can do is, like, hold people's hands. because. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh So, yeah, they were very critical of Protect and Survive as well.
1: I don't fucking blame them.
0: Yeah, Threads is about showing the worst case scenario, and that's why it's an important film, I think. Mm. It doesn't let the viewer become complacent. There was an earlier docudrama uh, in 1965 called The War Game, Mm -hmm. uh, which was banned from being shown on TV because it was judged too horrifying. Oh, fuck. This also imagined the aftermath of a nuclear strike in Britain and criticised the inefficiency of government plans. It was released, thanks to the open culture of the 80s, Mm -hmm. in 1985. And it's probably not as bad as threads, but it's completely understandable why it was too much for 1965. Mm. Another important piece of work that took inspiration um, from all this was When the Wind Blows.
1: Oh, uh, I've heard of that.
0: Yes, it was a book and then made into a film by uh, Raymond Briggs, who is most mm-hmm. famous for the Snowman. Yes. Um, so it kind of uses his very whimsical illustrations oh, to uh, tell tell the story of an elderly couple trying to survive a nuclear attack, basically. <laughs> and it's it's a ver- it's another very powerful story. Mm. It's kind of from the grave of the Firefly School of Harri- Harrowing in that it's just really sad. Yeah just relentlessly sad and Mm. um it also makes quite a powerful commentary i think about uh, because the elderly couple in it kind of have a rosy nostalgia about the second world war oh god yeah that completely blinds them to how awful it actually is yeah and yeah that's another (laughs) it's it's good it's good it's got a really good soundtrack as well david bowie did a song for it okay yeah and then there's comedy as well it pops up a lot in comedy
1: yeah like the young ones
0: yes I was about to say the young ones there's a whole episode of Bomb which is you know has like Neil whitewashing himself because the government yeah. said it would help <laughs> <laughs> but yeah just making fun of the futility of it all basically yeah. so the the theme is very much the same and as I said previously Protect and Survive also appeared in um the Frankie Goes to Hollywood dance hit Two Tribes which mm-hmm. includes a, a sample of Patrick Allen's narration and it slaps your homework <laughs> is to listen to listen to that song. I will do that. And also, uh, the annihilation mix of it is also really good. And uh-huh. also, listen to ninety nine Ballons by Nina because yes. that's just another great Cold War song.
1: Nine and nine sig That's a great song. Mm-hmm. That slaps. There's a really really good cover of it from the
0: Atomic Blonde uh, soundtrack. Ooh, okay. Which is also set during the Cold War. It is set during the Cold All War. Homework. See. <laughs> More homework. Watch Atomic Blonde. Now, as you may know, in 1991, Cold War nuclear paranoia kind of faded away. The siren system was dismantled, mostly. Mm. There are a couple of places that still use sirens. I was trying to get information about this, but I couldn't find much. But there are still sirens at... Uh, two of the UK's highest security psychiatric facilities.
1: Mm.
0: So Broadmoor uses what is essentially a, a nuclear siren, and it tests it, apparently, oh. every so often. So that's nice. Horrid. Um, and that would be deployed in the event of an escape. Uh-huh. And also, apparently, there is one at Torness Nuclear Power Station, which is literally just a few miles away from where I'm sitting right now, oh, near Dunbar. Yeah, apparently people in Dunbar are given iodine Pills in case ah. there's an accident. Yeah, ah. so that's nice. <laughs> the, it's it's really cool, actually. The Torness nuclear power station you can you can <laughs> visit it, or at least you normally I can. I think
1: you've mentioned it before. This is sounding familiar. I've
0: definitely mentioned it before. Yeah, I can't remember in what context, but I definitely <laughs> mentioned it before. I like industrial heritage, and that's industrial heritage.
1: That's very fair.
0: UKWMO was disbanded in 1992, as I previously mentioned. Mm the responsibility of alerting the public deferring to local authorities the four minute warning system is essentially defunct and it's all kind of become an artefact of the 80s and oh it is painfully 80s it really is (laughs) but the looming threat of nuclear war and the pathetic defences we had in place definitely had an effect on people yeah as I said before, I came across all this secondhand, uh, not just through when I visited the bunker, but um, at about the same time, I got really into uh, Charlie Brooker's work.
1: Mm. So,
0: like, I was binging Screen Wipe and also his newspaper column, yeah. which actually talks about quite a lot of these things. Like, I remember he talked about threads quite a few times. Yeah. And also there was a TV countdown in, I think it was like, I was like 10 when I watched it. I probably shouldn't have been watching it, but it was the top 100 <laughs> scariest moments of all time. It was on like oh, Channel geez. 4 and Protection Survive made it on there at number 89.
1: Hey, what made it to number one?
0: You know what? You know what? I'm going to look that up right now.
1: Yeah, do it. I want to know.
0: Okay. I want to know too. I don't, actually, I, don't, I don't recall seeing the whole thing. I think I was watching um. it like illegally at my friend's house. um where my parents wouldn't know that i was watching it
1: i've just thought of something another bit of media that carries kind of the zeitgeist of the cold
0: war yeah
1: good omens
0: that's also a good example yeah
1: Mm. because they're all like oh we're gonna get nuclear bombed that's gonna be the end of the world
0: yeah you're right actually yeah i mean when was it it would have when was it written good omens was it um i want to say late 80s early 90s Okay, that makes sense. Which
1: meant, you know, that that would still be very fresh in people's minds.
0: Yeah, totally. Oh, okay. Number one was The Shining, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That was higher? I find Protect and Survive much scarier. Yeah. (laughs) Me too. Uh, Number two is The Exorcist with the the vomiting bit. And number three is Jaws when the shark comes out of the water. Um, And they... I do, I'm I'm upset okay. now at how low down it is. Yeah, dude, there's a carry-on screaming film at number thirty. What the
1: fuck? Prote- I think Protect and Survive isn't necessarily quote unquote scary. I would call it deeply unsettling, which yeah. I think is worse.
0: Yeah, because yeah, like I say, I love horror. Like I can watch all mm. of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and be like, ah, cool. But um, yeah. this is horrifying in a completely separate way. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> the war game did score higher at number seventy four. Okay. Yeah, and I'm just—it was threads on this, but yeah, no, I get what you mean. No, nope, threads was not on it at all. What the fuck? I know, right? But carry on screaming. Carry on screaming. Made it. Jesus. We truly live in a society, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this got me wondering, like, what is the long term impact of all of it, like? Mm not just the vague idea of Cold War but the kind of eerie dread that was provoked by media depictions of the Cold War. There's some information out there about mental health in the event of an attack. Authors were working on a series of internal reports beginning in 1981 uh, among other things Mm. that it was most likely people would refuse to believe they were at risk and would live in denial until confronted with incontrovertible evidence which hits a little different doesn't it? Oh yeah. (laughs) But yeah, people would suffer. Then people would then suffer depression, anxiety, sorrow, anger, hostility, and apathy. Although apparently psychopaths might do quite well in such really? an environment. This is from um, a report by, uh, not a report, a, a, a post by the Welcome Collection, by the way. Oh, I love the Welcome Collection. Love the Welcome Collection. Big fan of that. But as as for the damage actually wrought by the mere threat of nuclear war. I found one paper, a 1986 paper by S.J. Kerali, from whom I also obtained the earlier info on the Hibakusha's mental state. Mm-hmm. Both adults and children would suffer, uh, actually did suffer stress from the threat in a way that affected their everyday lives. Children and adolescents suffered most, mm. and adults, adults would not be taking the children's fear seriously, perhaps because they were themselves relieving stress by avoiding the issue, like denial, yeah. depersonalization, whatever. And this could lead to the child becoming mistrustful, impulsive and sociopathic. Both would lead to anxiety disorders, family breakdown, criminality, drug abuse and alcoholism. <laughs> Which I mean, it's from nineteen eighty six, so I don't really know but yeah. I mean it would it would be a genuine trauma, I think. Oh absolutely. Yeah. But the paper concluded that the threat of nuclear war alone was itself an issue that authorities needed to address. Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: Because that kind of living in constant kind of readiness must be... I mean, it's
0: not even that, because people weren't Mm. living in readiness. That's the thing. I guess a lot of the fear Mm. is that we can't do anything about it. What I'd be interested in was like, and I don't know if this already exists, uh, I didn't find it, but I'd like a kind of survey of, people who were alive during the the 80s especially people who were children then mm. and how they were impacted by the the nuclear discourse and in particular by protect and survive
1: mm i think that would be interesting
0: yeah i mean information exists anecdotally i recommend checking out how tv ruined your life fear and screen i forget which episode of screen wipe mentions the qed episode but there is an episode of screen wipe, mm. wipe that talks about the qed episode but watch all of them anyway, because they're all funny. <laughs> but you know, I, I want to kind of wrap up on as positive a note as I possibly can. You know? Yeah. I'm not a monster. <laughs> <laughs> Threads and Protection Survive, they're about the worst case scenario, and they have to be about the worst case scenario because it's important that nuclear war is taken seriously. A nuclear war is not winnable. Yeah. But I have difficulty fully investing in the way people behave towards each other in. them like threads so in in threads people kind of immediately descend into savagery and yeah in protect and survive there is this there's one particular bit where they say don't leave your area because you are not known people will not help you in other places
1: yeah it's the idea that humans can't survive without you know a, a government system yeah when humans have done just fine yeah i think it's the same thing not to get political please um but i will Um, But it's the same kind of mentality that comes in when people are talking about things like defunding the police. It's like, well, what are we supposed to do without them? No one will help each other. It's like the police haven't existed. The police have only been around for a couple hundred years. Yeah. (laughs) It's why the purge always pisses me off, because I'm like, you assume that without rules or without governing bodies, people will immediately go to murder and theft and all the rest of it when in
0: reality, most likely people would want to help each other. I feel like in reality in the purge universe there would be so many like purge support groups that would like basically invest in like a shelter for people, if that makes yeah, sense. You know? Absolutely. I feel like there would be a lot of community support and even though there would be people who were going loco like that would that that would happen but um yeah i don't think it would be like how those movies depicted it but it's kind of moot because those movies are stupid yeah they are (laughs) (laughs) people i mean people are social animals and people who are left behind in a nuclear blast might be a hell of a lot more cooperative than has been depicted
1: yeah absolutely
0: I think coronavirus has shown this in a little way, because, well, you've got people acting like selfish assholes. People have generally mm. been good during yeah, this whole thing. It's governments, though, Absolutely. really been letting us down, but people have been kind of obeying the... That's why I think the, the Dominic Cummings thing, people were so pissed off at him, because... They were following the guidelines, you know what I mean? Yeah. But we don't ever want to find out whether I'm right or wrong about that. Um, mm. It's not helpful to give yourself nightmares about all this, but it's also not helpful no. to ignore or underestimate stuff that is dangerous. Um, but that's why I think it's important that Threads exists and holds absolutely mm-hmm. nothing back. And I'm glad that protection Survive still scares people. Yeah. And also as, like... I'm glad it exists as a cultural artefact of what the Cold War felt like for everyday people in the UK. Mm. And next time, Absolutely. I as I said before, I hope we're going to talk about something a little bit more fun, which is espionage. But <laughs> yeah. I found it kind of irresponsible, maybe, to get into all of that without acknowledging the end game of the Cold War getting really hot yeah. and how scary it was for a lot of people. And Britain was in a particularly mm. vulnerable position because despite being a relatively... Uh, not really a key player it had a lot of potential targets concentrated close together yeah you know and also um I, I do want to finish by saying people have never taken any of this lying down the most famous anti-protest group was the green home common women's peace camp which mm-hmm. was at, which is where american cruise missiles were stored um, at the RAF Greenham Common in Berkshire. So this was a protest mm-hmm. camp that ran from 1981 to 2000. Oh, wow. Yeah, had a long run. And it began with 36 women chaining themselves to the fence, protesting nuclear armament. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Yeah, totally. It's it's really cool. Uh, protests grew. In 1983, 70,000 protesters formed a human chain around the fence. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, there's there's a great 2017 Guardian article where uh, people who were there described their memories of the camp. One of them said, we weaponised traditional notions of femininity, like using their identity as mothers, carers, to protest. Hell yeah. Yeah, and they would um, dress up in black and say they were mourning the death of children who were going to be killed. And they would also dress up as witches... Like, to kind of make... Because the, the media was already nice. kind of being like, these women are, are witches. So they were like, you know mm. what? Yeah, we are. We're a witches' covered. Yeah, fuck it. Posing threat to family values, which is hilarious, because they were trying to protect family values. <laughs> yeah. Someone described it as uh, the protesters were violating a male space of the military installation <laughs> by, like, having it, all the women around it. <laughs> and another aspect of it I found interesting was that the protesters were described as... Um, they, they would keen and wail... Mm. Like, in their protest. Uh, no particular reason why, but... Like banshees. Like banshees, I guess. Yeah. But I'm like, is it kind of imitating a siren? Because that's a pretty, you know, that kind Ooh, of... Yeah. yeah. And the the Guardian report, uh, one of the authors mentioned that she heard the kind of wailing and keening at the uh, women's marches. You, you know, mm. the ones that started in sort of 2017-ish. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's still going on. Uh, there are a lot of accounts and photographs of the Greenham Common out there. I recommend looking them up. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of reminding me
1: of in, I want to say, either Scottish or Irish mythology. Yeah. They regularly have, like, I mean, I suppose that's Banshees, isn't it? Hmm. But, like, uh, Cuckoo Lane, before he went into his final battle, saw a woman weeping and washing bloody armour and, like, wailing. It's not unlike that at
0: all. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a kind of wailing to forewarn, impending doom. They'd be... I, I I assume there's more on this kind of mm. out there somewhere. So I, I apologize for such a shallow overview, but um, yeah, they would they would do other stuff like the um, two hundred women broke into the base dressed as teddy bears, <laughs> and also like tied teddy bears to the fences, which is meant to be like a symbol yeah. of childhood, basically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah. they also used the spider web as a symbol because it's supposed to be both fragile and resilient if that makes sense yeah yeah okay so there's a whole lot going on if, if you're into women's history at all um, I recommend reading it because these women kind of are kind of outside the the popular consciousness for younger generations and for older yeah. for older people they have it's quite common to have stereotypes of them as woolly hatted hippies or all as witches or whatever and you know a lot yeah. a lot of them you were hippies they were you know, it's it's a really great legacy of peaceful protest and of mm. Britain's model of power and protest under the first female prime minister. Yeah. She called them eccentrics, I think, um, which is a surprisingly neutral comment. But there you have it. Yeah. For Thatcher. Some women's lived there for years mm. and some, you know, people who are still alive, they still are involved in nuclear protest today. Mm. Yeah, there's so many great accounts. I found one from a woman named Hiroko Hatakeyama who was a survivor of the Hiroshima bomb and spent four days at the common camp. Yeah. Because she was involved in anti-nuclear campaigns in Japan. Weird, that. Yeah, funny that. Mm. And, you know, she said it was... It opened her eyes for... A lot of issues um, and like the need to empower women economically so it's quite an important piece of feminist history as well as nuclear disarmament
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah and these campaigns are still ongoing the campaign for nuclear disarmament still exists and is worth supporting it's uh it's, it's an issue that's kind of in the past but not in the past if that makes sense mm. mm-hmm. and hopefully something like protect and survive is something that is a thing of the past
1: yeah but
0: never take that for granted mm-hmm.
1: Because
0: history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good way of looking at it.
0: Yeah, I forget who that quote was. I apologise. But yeah, that's pretty much what I have to say about. That's really interesting. Oh, glad to hear it. However, the... that is your grave history.
1: Interestingly, as you've you've come to, you've come to your end. The sun has
0: come out here, which is quite symbolic and nice. That is nice. It's still gross here, so I don't know what that means. Yeah, oh. I'm sorry. yeah i hope that was uh, i don't know i just wanted to talk about something that i personally found quite scary
1: yeah macabre history comes in all forms it's not necessarily like directly macabre Mm. it can be just deeply unsettling
0: basically yeah this isn't the fun kind of spooky spooky stuff that we, mm. <laughs> that we that we we like talking about. Uh, but don't worry, we will have more of that incoming. Yeah. Speaking of which, have you decided on your next topic? I have. Ooh. I have.
1: So I'm going to be talking about the um, cholera outbreak nice. in London in the mid-1800s.
0: Cool. So we're going back in time
1: again. Yeah. That'll be interesting. Sadly, I can't actually go to the area um, that's famous for it at the moment, but... I will tell you about it in vivid
0: detail. So. Look it up on like Google Maps, and it's just like being there.
1: <laughs> it's perfect. I'll go Street View, and I can look at the John Snow Pub.
0: Whereabouts is it in, in It's
1: um, it's in Soho. It's okay. just a little way off uh, Oxford Street, actually. So pretty accessible.
0: I may have photos of that area because I did yeah. um, I did a hospital walk, which uh... is. Oh, yeah. going around looking at all the places mm. where hospitals used to be and there were quite a few in that area
1: yeah there's a veggie pret <laughs>
0: yes there is now a veggie pret and an accessorized and a, <laughs> a, 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 a sex shop in that whole yeah. area I don't know oh yeah I um, mean it's Soho isn't it uh, Soho keeps its roots and aren't <laughs> we grateful for that Oh yeah,
1: um, but yeah that is what we, we shall be covering next time I thought it that would be fun. interesting to cover uh, a historical outbreak without just going directly for the plague. Um, although that would be interesting to cover, particularly the earlier outbreak. The plague would be great. Everyone focuses on the 17th century outbreak and not the earlier one.
0: Yeah, I was I was into the plague before it was cool.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that is what we shall be covering next time. Um, Wonderful. Thank you for this deeply unsettling and haunting look at Cold War Britain. I very much It's called
0: it. grave histories. It is, it is.
1: Um, this was certainly that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Welcome to my niche interests. You can't <laughs> leave <laughs> now that you're here. I've locked the doors. <laughs> oh perfect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well I will see you next time.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it.
1: Good night.
0: Good night. Don't let the radioactive fall out by it. No, seriously, don't. <laughs>